This is the Big Issues Better Pod, acting today for a better tomorrow. What we need to consider is, you know, when there's a new technology, is this something that actually benefits the public or is it simply being integrated or rolled out because it benefits a certain commercial interest or a certain billionaire? What does Silicon Valley get wrong about the future of transportation? Tech giants like Uber and Tesla promise they will fix the problems currently associated with getting from A to B, whether that's the contribution to climate change, deaths on our roads, or the frustration of being stuck in traffic. But do their solutions live up to the hype? In this week's BetterPod, we're joined by Paris Marks, host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. His new book, Road to Nowhere, exposes the problems with tech's vision of the future. He tells us about the steps we can take to reclaim the future of transport so it serves the many, not the few. I'm Laura Kelly, Future Generations Editor at The Big Issue. I lead a team of exciting young journalists from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in the media. My name's Sophie Dimitrievich and I'm part of the Future Generations team here at The Big Issue. Over these past few months, I've learned invaluable skills to help me pursue a career in journalism something that I never thought I'd get the chance to do coming from such a strict Eastern European background. So Sophie, tell me what you came away with from speaking to Paris. I mean, I think as a collective, we focus so much on the positive visions that these tech companies and giants like Elon Musk can create that we've almost forgotten the negatives of it all. Speaking to Paris gave me insight into what would happen if we allow these billionaires to choose the future for us and allowed insight into something I never even considered for the future of transport. Hi, Paris. Thanks for joining Sophie and me on Better Pods. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Very excited to chat with you. I have to admit, I am a bit of a sci-fi fan. So promises of flying cars and jetpacks have always seemed pretty cool to me. Cheap Ubers and self-driving cars also sound pretty good. So what is actually wrong with leaving the future of transport to the inventors and tech giants? You know, I would say that I'm also like a sci-fi fan myself, right? Like I I love watching those shows, playing the video games, reading the books, like totally all about it. Um, But then, you know, I think we also need to think about whether or not that is also like the future that we should be realizing or will realize, you know, maybe in a few hundred years or a thousand years, we will be out in the stars and, and whatnot. But I think that, you know, refocusing our attention on that today is probably not the greatest idea when we have so many other kind of pressing challenges to to have to deal with. And so, you know, when we think about the ideas that the tech industry is putting forward, my concern, you know, whether we're looking at things like Mars colonization, like Musk says, with like Elon Musk says, with regard to SpaceX, or even just, you know, more simple things, um, like the idea that we, all we need is these new technologies, and it's going to solve all the problems with the car, the human death, the traffic, all these other things, right? And I think what we see time and time again is that, you know, maybe these these tech founders come to these problems with, um, you know, they mean well in, in proposing these solutions to, to these major problems. But what we see is that when we then kind of assess the promises that they've made 
five or 10 years down the line, we can see that they didn't actually solve the problems that they claimed to to want to solve um, and has, in many cases, have actually kind of exacerbated those problems, made them worse. Um, and so if we think about what we actually need to make you know, society a better place, we actually need to take on those problems and not just fall for you know false solutions that sound really nice on paper, as much as we might love the sci-fi visions. <laughs> Damn, so what you're saying to me is I'm not getting my, my jetpack. <laughs> So what would the future look like if we allowed big tech to shape it? It can go many ways, right? But my concern, you know, as as people who read the book will know, is that, you know, we tend to think a bit too positively and believe the positive visions of the tech companies a bit too much and not pay attention to the negative impacts that they've had on society as as much as we should. Certainly, you know, we've, we're paying attention to that a bit more, I think, in recent years and recognizing um, the degree to which they've expanded surveillance. Uh, you know, they've had other negative impacts on society. They've, they've attacked the rights of workers, all of these other ways that we should be concerned about, right? But if we're thinking about cities and kind of the further implementation of these technologies in cities without kind of proper regulatory guardrails and, and means to ensure that the technologies actually serve the public, um, I think that there are a number of really worrying developments that we'll start to see. You know, we've already started to um, experience the rollout of these stores that, um, you know, have no cashiers um, and where everything within the store is just tracked with cameras and sensors. Um, Amazon has been pushing this, but other retailers have been following suit. Um, and so as those expand, you know, there's a real worry about the exclusion that's built into these stores, right? If you need to have a, a smartphone and an Amazon account and a credit card and access to the internet just to go in and use these stores, there are a lot of people who are excluded from that, not to mention people who would just object to being so surveilled just to go in and buy their groceries, right? Um, but then beyond that, you know, there's this desire to create a smart city, right? To move beyond the internet itself, the online world, to put more of these digital technologies in the physical world. And as more and more of the services that we want to access or the, or the places that we want to go are you know, covered in these sensors, it creates new ways for exclusion to be built into, you know, the physical layer of society, so to speak. And I think that's really the most significant way that this could really affect society and affect people in ways that they don't think about right now. Because often we, we think, okay, these new technologies will be rolled out, things will become more convenient as a result. But then what also comes with that convenience is a new layer of surveillance that's watching everything we do, that's tracking everything we do, um, as well as ways to exclude people that aren't really taken into account because the people who are developing these ideas are people who wouldn't be excluded because they typically tend to be higher income people, you know, well off in society. Um, and so they don't think about how it's going to affect people that aren't like them. Yeah, you've mentioned some of the problems around exclusion. Obviously, the big issue are vendors are people who've often faced homelessness or faced other sorts of social exclusion. So that's a really live idea for us at all times. Um, and you know, we've, we've seen that come through in loads of different ways, you know, the smartphones being one of the really obvious ways, but loads of other ways as well. What other sorts of groups get left behind in this vision of the future? There's plenty, really. Um, like, there are so many ways, depending on which aspect of it that you look at, right? Um, in particular, you know, the poor and people who have less access to resources are the ones that are going to at least be able to kind of adjust to this society. Because as you're saying, you know, we have these smartphones. Um, it's just an expectation now that this is a norm, that everyone should have one. 
and that that is kind of becoming an expectation in order to access services in order to you know check into places in order to do a whole load of things right but beyond that when we think about transportation technologies in particular one of the lines that a lot of these tech companies use is that they're going to make them better for people with disabilities as well right because now you're going to have all these technologies that are you know built in that are providing new means of of helping people but what we see time and time again is that that rhetoric is used that it's going to help people with disabilities but then the actual implementation makes life more difficult for people with this with disabilities it in the case of uber i don't know how it works in the uk but in the united states they've explicitly got gotten themselves written out of the americans with disabilities act so they wow. don't need to provide wheelchair accessible service um because they're considered a technology company rather than a transportation company. But then if we look at the newer things that are being rolled out on the, on the streets, people will be familiar with these micromobility services, right? The dockless scooters in particular that have rolled out in recent years. And in many cases, you know, those are just dropped on the sidewalk or particularly when they are initially launched. And that creates a barrier for people, right? Some people can easily walk over them. Okay, they're annoying, whatever. Um, but then people with um, guide dogs, you know, who, who, are blind or, you know, have, have issues with vision, um, you know, can't get around them so easily. People with wheelchairs certainly can't navigate around them. And then one of the ideas that we're seeing increasingly rolled out is these kind of delivery robots that are these like little bots that are supposed to bring your burrito or, you know, whatever other little thing that you order, you know, to your door, uh, so to speak. Um, but those are also not really designed to take into account how people actually use the sidewalk, right? Sure, it's it's novel and, and can look cute if there's like a few on the sidewalk, but if they become a more popular service and there are a ton of these robots everywhere, that's really getting in the way. And there, there are certainly examples um, of where these have been tested, where people in wheelchairs or people with... Um, with guide dogs have encountered them and then not been able to navigate around them or they created barriers for them because they block so much of the sidewalk and, you know, the, the parts of the street that they need to use. So, you know, there are many people that can be excluded with these technologies. And the problem is, as I said, that the people developing them tend not to think about these, um, you know, more marginalized populations who are not on the development team who would be encountering these things and then finding them creating barriers in their lives instead of more convenience as we're often sold. Coming up, what would a better future of transport look like? Did you know you can get The Big Issues award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com slash bigpod to find out more. Would you consider yourself to be anti-tech? I've always liked technology. Like since I was young, I was interested in technology. I was into computers when I was young. You know, I used to make websites for fun when I was like in my earlier teens and things like that. Um, so I, I don't know if I would say that I'm anti-technology. I think there are certainly some people who would say that about me, um, <laughs> who don't agree <laughs> with what I would say. Um but I think I would more say that I'm critical of technology in the sense that I think that for too long, we've been too optimistic and kind of blind to the actual impacts that technology can have, right? There's, there's this general narrative in our society that technology is associated with progress. And so when we get new technologies, that is indicative of society moving forward. And, and what I would say is that particularly what we can see over the past couple of decades, but I think you can go back even further and, and see this as well 
is that technologies are often designed, you know, based around kind of the social system and the economic system that they emerge out of, right? And so the technologies that we're getting right now are often designed to, you know, produce profit for particular companies and to um, help or, or, you know, um, aid certain people in society, the, the more wealthier, the more powerful people are the ones who benefit the most. And so when we look at the effects that the tech industry has had over the past number of decades, I would say that, yes, there are certainly examples where they have made things more convenient, where, you know, there are obviously ways that we benefit, like being able to take this call right now where, you know, we're on different continents and and able to talk to one another. Like there are benefits that come of these things. Mm -hmm. But I think that too often we tend to downplay or or not pay enough attention to the negatives that come of these technologies um, because they work for these companies that are profiting from them and and they don't want us to pay attention to the negative um, aspects of society or, or sorry negative aspects of technology um, and so it's not so much that you know we don't need technology and that we shouldn't be developing new technologies and we don't need new technologies in order to pr- improve society. I think that we definitely do. But what we need to consider is, you know, when there's a new technology, is this something that actually benefits the public or is it simply being integrated or rolled out because it benefits a certain commercial interest or a certain billionaire? Um And so I think that's more of the perspective that we need to have on technology. Make sure that it actually works for people. If it doesn't, we don't adopt it. If it does, let's embrace it and and let's try to make sure that it does the most good that that it can. Um, But the key is that technology itself is not what makes society better. It's technology paired with a politics that can ensure that that technology does good in the world. And that's too often what we're lacking in Silicon Valley, where we have these people who have a deep faith in technology and the free market and want nothing to do with the political system and actually ensuring that, you know, there's a good politics in place that's helping people. No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like they also over glamorize everything and kind of make everything futuristic in a way that isn't really possible. But um, I guess leading on from that, what would a better future for transport look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And and just to pick up on what you said there, like if you think of a company like Uber and, you know, it it positions itself as like the future of transportation as as this really innovative thing. And what's the innovation that they really did was like to put a button on your smartphone to hail a taxi. Like, you know, (laughs) like how, how much is it really moving society forward? Right. And so I would say if we're thinking about a better future of transportation and what is actually going to address the serious problems that we've been talking about, right? The deaths that that people experience on the road, the uh, contribution to climate change, the fact that so many people are stuck in traffic, even the cost of owning a vehicle, which is which is huge for a lot of people, right? Especially now as vehicle prices have gone up during the pandemic and petrol prices now are like at, at crazy high prices, right? Um, and so how do we address that? It's really to look toward collective solutions, right? And that requires like a political change in how we look at the solutions to transportation. And so that means like a much greater investment in the transit system to actually provide accessible, affordable transit for people um, so that they can get out of their cars in a more realistic way, because there are still a lot of people who feel that, you know, transit wouldn't be reliable enough for them um, in order to ditch their car. And so we need to make it so that is the case. Um, And, you know, certainly there are cities like London that have good transportation, but 
you know, where, where the transit system is really expensive. Right. Um, and especially for, for a lot of people and then other parts of the UK, I know have, have struggled to improve their transit systems because of the way that the, the regulations are, are designed right now, particularly around bus systems. Um, and so those are things that we certainly need to improve, but even beyond that, you know, ensuring that the infrastructure is there so that people can use a bike, right. More realistically so that you know there are lanes where they can feel safe and that a car isn't going to run them down if they're cycling on the road and where they can safely park their bike and not feel that it's going to be stolen um if you know it's left out you know in in public right um and there are certainly plenty of examples where that can happen where where those improvements can be made but then i would say even beyond that like we need to think about what's necessary to improve the transportation system, but that's one system that's connected with a whole other load of systems, right? Um, that that determine how we live and the kind of society that we have. And so we need to improve transportation, but then one of the problems that can arise from that is transportation improves and then property prices around that transportation soar and the people who would most benefit from that improved transportation then get priced out and have to move somewhere else, right? And so we need to improve the transportation system, but then we also need to think about what's necessary in the housing system, right? Maybe a greater degree of council housing, um, a reinvestment in those sorts of things so that people can actually afford to live in these communities and actually ensuring that there are community spaces for, for people as well so that they can enjoy their communities and, you know, make connections with the people who are around them. All these things that, um, that are beneficial to people, um, but that don't always make as much profit as having everything privatized and, and just existing in the market, right? And so, yeah, I think that there are many pieces of it, but there are certainly ways that we can make society a better place. But the key to that is that it doesn't just require new technologies. And even in many cases, we have all the technologies we need in order to do this. It really requires a politics that is going to enact those changes to improve people's lives. You talked a bit about social interaction there, and about kind of the, that that human bit that um, that you know the technology whizzes tend to uh, talk of as friction, which is a weird way of talking about it. Um, again, it made me think of our vendors. So, like when you go and buy a magazine off one of our vendors in the street, that's a really human interaction, and you you know you stand and have a conversation with someone that you wouldn't necessarily already speak to. And I've always thought that that was really important. Why do you think that social interaction and social interaction you know, across a broader spectrum of society is important politically? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think it's important for a basic, really basic reason that we need to be able to communicate with one another, to interact with one another. And I think that having those interactions actually kind of improves the community life and also makes us more relatable to one another, right? More on more understanding of what other people are going through um, and, and experiencing. And I think it's so odd that so much of like the quote unquote innovation that is driving particularly what's happening in, in cities and, um, you know, smart technologies and things like that right now is really designed around at least putting a technology in between humans, but more and more trying to replace the humans altogether, right? So you only interact with the technology and you don't have this interaction with with actual people, with other people around you. And that just seems so fundamentally wrong to me. Um, like it's just such a misreading of what is necessary to have a good society. And then again, like you think about the people who are developing the solutions, um, you know, like, like, why are they doing this? Why do they have this desire to make us not relate to one another, to make us not talk to one another? Um, 
And, you know, you can see a very kind of direct financial motivation. The more and more that we're interacting with screens and technologies, the more profitable it is for these companies. Um, but then beyond that, uh, you know, there's there's also this desire that's built into it in order to erode the conditions of workers further. Because what af- what often happens with these technologies is that the workers aren't completely like you don't completely get rid of the workers, right? They're, they're still workers within the system. But so much uh, of what happens is that you lose the ability to see the worker because they're replaced with the technology. And then you forget that the worker is behind the scenes, right? And I, I think that makes them easier to exploit as well. Because what we see w- with so many of these technologies is that you know, you're, you can order your Uber or your food delivery um, and, you know, you know, the worker is out there, but you're not really thinking about the conditions that they experience or you order what you want off of Amazon. And then you don't so much think of like what the workers are going through in the warehouses. But even so many of these digital technologies are reliant on what's called AI, right? Artificial intelligence. And what is actually fueling so many of those supposed AI systems is a bunch of really incredibly poorly paid micro workers around the world who do like tasks that they're paid just pennies for that might last just seconds to identify data, to identify images, um, even to, you know, approve um, whether or not an Uber driver you know, their photo matches their profile and things like that, these new like security features that have come in or to decide whether they should have their account disabled. And so like you're even outsourcing the management in some ways to these micro workers. So there's there's a really weird kind of political economy that is developing there that and and just more broadly, like a really weird way of structuring society that I don't think anyone who really kind of understood it and and looked deeply at it would say that this is a positive direction for society to go in, that we would actually want to have this happen in our society to remove all these human interactions. But it doesn't really matter to these tech companies because what drives them is not, you know, creating a better society, but maximizing revenue um, and having more and more people using their products. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why we need to think more critically about what these companies are doing in the world, the, the effect that they're having. We like to finish our conversations with some hope. Are there places in the world that are getting transport right? And what can we learn from them? It feels, you know, I feel like people often point to, especially in North America, to Europe as like where we need to look for the example of, of how things can be better. And and to a certain degree, that's true, right? Like, I think if you look at Paris, they have had this significant increase in cycling through the pandemic, just to show like, how rapidly you can, you can make these changes just by closing streets, by ensuring the bike lanes are there, you know, by ensuring the infrastructure is in place to encourage people to take the bikes and, and get out of their cars, right? Um, and, and so that's a really positive thing. We can see in cities like Oslo, where they have taken a ton of parking spots off out of like the center of the city and replaced those with bicycle parking or um, just like little seating areas for people to kind of sit down and have these human interactions within the middle of the city and also to make it to, to discourage using your automobile because now there's going to be nowhere to park it if you're if you're driving in that part of the city. Um, but then I think we can also look beyond that um, and see that, you know, cities in China have been building out subway systems and have, you know, China itself has been building out a really significant high speed rail system that we can probably learn from in order to see how we can, you know, connect our cities better um, and and reduce the amount of flying, hopefully, that goes on. But then, you know, there are other solutions from other parts of the world as well. In, in Latin America, there are 
bus rapid transit systems are really popular. So, you know, if subways are too expensive or don't work for a particular city, you know, you have these dedicated lanes for this kind of bus system that can still go really quickly um, and, and pick people up in those kinds of ways and, you know, have much higher capacity than if the buses are constantly stuck in in traffic, right? And so there are plenty of solutions and plenty of, I think, places that we can look for inspiration for hope that transportation can get better. Um, but, you know, all of those things require political action and political commitment in order to realize. And so that is really the key in order to, to making those changes within cities. We finish each of our podcasts by asking our guests the same three questions each week to help our readers act for a better tomorrow. So I'm going to hand over to Sophie to ask you those questions. What's one bit of advice you'd wish you'd known earlier? I guess I had some trouble trying to figure this one out. I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> um, I, I would say probably to try to like have a bit more fun. I think so often like we can just be stuck on like the hamster wheel, right? And like trying to move forward, trying to like advance our careers or what have you. Um, but I think especially the pandemic has shown us like we need to take a bit more time to like relax and, you know, it's okay if things don't move as fast as you want or you don't get the promotion that you want or whatnot. Um, life is short, like, you know, enjoy it. Exactly. What's one piece of art that gives you hope for the future? I feel like a lot of the books I read are <laughs> kind of cr critical of technology. And so they're not always the most <laughs> hopeful books. <laughs> and so I think, I think the one I would want to shout out is not even a new book like you know it's been around for quite a long time um and it's a science fiction book um called the dispossessed by ursula k Le Guin, and it's this fantastic story that kind of puts two different kinds of societies you know very capitalistic society and a more anarchist society alongside one another um and and kind of looks at them through the lens or through the through the view of this this particular character and i think it really allows us to think about um the kind of society that we have and and how things could work differently if we kind of took a step back and, and thought more more broadly about uh, the kind of world that we live in. What's one thing our listeners could do today to make tomorrow better? I thought about, you know, proposing a more individual solution, you know, buying a bike, taking transit a bit more often. And certainly things can, people can do that, right? But I would say possibly the best thing that people can do in order to try to make these changes that we've been talking about is you know really to join like a collective organization that pushes for these changes in society whether that is you know a union to try to fight for workers rights um, or some kind of activist organization that is pushing for better transportation in society and and for these changes to be made uh, in order to enable people to to get rid of their cars um, i think that is is a good place to start Thanks for listening to BetterPod. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. We're relying on word of mouth to bring people into our conversation and to help us all discover how we can act today for a better tomorrow. You can keep up with all the Big Issues reporting at bigissue.com where you can also discover how to find your local vendor.